A couple weeks ago, we spoke on what a typical Centerpoint service is like. And in that service, we spoke about one of the things that we do in that time is worship. And, uh, and we spoke about worship a little bit then. And I said then that that was too big of a topic for any one setting. And it is. And it's probably too big of a topic for multiple settings. Because worship is that important in our life and that important. And so today I want to continue to talk about worship. And I want to try to grasp, I want us to try to grasp the, the, the power there is in worship. That there's absolutely um, unlimited power in worship. And I want to help define that a little bit and kind of give us a little bit more understanding of that, what that is. And I'm not, really, I'm not sure that many people anywhere really grasps that concept of the power that there is in worship. See, worship is, is ingrained in us from the very beginning. God created man to be a worshiper. He instilled within us, our heart, a area of worship that was intended to be worshipped of God. That we were intended to have fellowship with God. When he created us, he created us in his image for the purpose of worship, for the purpose of relationship. Worship, relationship, praise. You know, I'm sure that there's specific definitions of all of those, but yet when they all come together, it's all kind of the same thing. It's called praise, worship, relationship to God. Mankind having a discussion, having a conversation, having a relationship with God, our Creator. And He, he put in us that innate desire to worship. Now, unfortunately, sin got involved. When Adam and Eve fell, the enemy was given um, authority in their life. The enemy was given opportunity to come in and distort now what God created to be perfect. God created worship to be perfect. But the enemy came in and took, took precedence in man's life because man gave him the opportunity to. So now worship, which was intended to be pure and authentic and worship to God, has now been twisted into worship of almost anything. We are not limited now to worshiping God. See, God gave mankind free will. And with free will, we have the opportunity to choose what we do with our time, with our efforts, with our energies, with our stewardship, like Drew talked about in, in, in the offering this morning, we are giving free choice. So we choose now what we do with what God has given us. And so that, that innate worship nature, we have the choice of who or what we worship. That's why there's so much power in worship. And I want to talk about that today. I want to go through and go through some definitions and some understanding of of what worship is, and, and we want to talk about um, the importance that we bring back in our life that desire to worship God and God alone. We talked about it in the Sunday school today. Dick talked about hunger and thirst, and, and that we are giving a, a thirst for godliness, and how important it is that we nurture that and protect that and, and make sure that we feed that, that appetite with godly things and not things of the world. If you want fullness in your life, the only way you're going to get fullness in your life is to keeping Jesus as a center point of your life and therefore all of our worship has to be to Jesus. I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. 
But anyway, that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, I'm going to reference uh, some, some passages today from a book that uh, I've recently read, and, and Jackie's actually in the process of reading it as well. It's, uh, it's entitled The Vertical Church, written by James McDonald, and, and he writes a chapter on worship. And uh, so I've, I've taken some of his quotes and some of his uh, messages along with that and, and some other people as well. But, but I want to I talk about four or five different topics this morning. And I want to, so we can have a proper understanding of, uh, first of all, what is worship? We're going to talk about that. What is worship? Who we are to worship or who do we worship? How do we worship? When do we worship? And why? Is worship necessary? So, as you can see, we have a lot to talk about, and we're gonna we're gonna do our best to get through it today, and uh, hopefully we'll get some good instruction this morning. What is worship to God like? I I have some definitions from a few contemporary Bible scholars that or teachers that I think are, are worth talking about this morning. So, let me just read a few uh, from different ones that what worship is, and they are looking at basically worship to God. Okay, let's let's look at this. Louis Giglio says, Worship is our response, both personal and corporate, to God for who He is and what He has done, expressed in and by the things we say and the way we live. All right, that's Louis Giglio's definition of worship. David Peterson says this, Worship of the living and true God is essentially an engagement with Him on the terms that He proposes and in the way that He alone makes possible. John Frame says this about worship. Worship is not one segment of the Christian life among others. Worship is not is the entire Christian life seen as a priestly offering to God. And when we meet together as a church, our time of worship is not merely a preliminary to something else. Rather, it is the whole point of our existence as a body of Christ. John Piper says this. He says, worship is is what we are created for. This is the final end of all existence, the worship of God. God created the universe so that it would display the worth of his glory. And he created us so that we would see his, this glory and reflect it by knowing and loving it with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The church needs to build a common vision of what worship is and what she is gathering to do on Sunday morning and scattering to do on Monday morning. I love that part. That the church comes together on Sunday morning to worship, but yet we then take that same attitude of worship, and then as we scatter on Monday morning, we are still living and still breathing and still expressing worship to God. We take it with us. But if you take God out of the focal point of worship, because these men are all talking about worship to God, but if you take God out of the, the, the focal point of the worship, then the definition can mean something other than worship to God. Now, Josh Riley says it this way. He says, worship is everything we think, everything we say, and everything we do, revealing that which we treasure and value most in life. You see that? That definition of worship gives us a different perspective because it doesn't just focus on God. If I look just at worship and don't look at a godly worship, worship in its definition is saying that we are placing great value on something. Whatever it is, 
or whoever it is, that we honor it, we cherish it, we give homage to it, we ultimately, what it is, becomes the center point of our life. Whatever we worship becomes our driving motivational force. That's why worship is so powerful. That's why it's so important that we understand that worship uh, is, is intended to be to God and to God alone. Because I can worship my house. I can worship my car. I can worship my money. I can worship lots of things. And whatever I worship, that becomes my God. So who are we to worship? Let's, let's, let's ask that question. Now, you're looking at me probably and saying, well, Mike, that's a pretty easy question. We're in church. Of course we worship God. I mean, what else would you say? I mean, if I was to say, who do you worship, what are you going to say? God. <laughs> Nobody's going to say I worship my car. Nobody's going to admit that. Nobody's going to say that. We're going to say, of course you worship God. But, but let me ask you this morning, does your life line up with that? If you go back and look at your life this week and look at the choices you've made and look at the things you've done, where you've chosen to go, when you went there, the things, the priorities that you placed in your life, does your life prove what you just said? Does your life prove that, prove that you worship God? Or do you worship your job or do you worship your relationships at home or do you, relation, do you worship other things? Matthew 6.21 tells us, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that goes right along with Josh Riley's definition of worship. We worship what we value most. And ultimately, that proves who or what our God is. Let me read that again. We worship what we value most. And that proves who or what our God is. You go back and look at your life this week. What did you do in your life? What did you do with your time? What did you do with your free choices? That'll give you an opportunity to measure yourself about who is your God. What is your God? I'm not measuring it. I'm not going back and evaluating you. This is a self-examination. That's why worship is so personal. That's why worship is so powerful. If a person's treasure is on earth, then that's where, and that's where his worship is, regardless of what he thinks. You can say all the words, but if your worship, if your value is on earthly things, then ultimately you're worshiping earthly things. Let's just, let's just cut to the chase and be really honest with ourselves today. Coming to church is not plastic, okay? We talked about that as well, that we want authenticity in church. We want truth spoken in church. We want love spoken in church. And love is truth. Love and truth go hand in hand together. And so as you deal with yourself, don't give yourself opportunities to fool yourself. Let's just really look at it as self-evaluation. And no matter what I say in my life, no matter what I say this morning, if I place my overall emphasis on earthly things, then I'm going to get out of the vertical worship mentality and I'm going to soon quickly get into the horizontal worship mentality. We entitled our, our worship last night, Vertical Worship. Vertical worship means because my focus is on Jesus and godly things which are above, above. And I have my relationship with God. And if I keep that pure and holy and, and true, then my worship to him is un, unhindered. And as soon as I allow the cares of life to sneak in and start taking some priority in my value of worship, all of a sudden my verticalness 
slowly becomes horizontalness. And there's no godliness in horizontalness. So that for me to place anything over my value of God is a form of idolatry. Again, let's be honest with ourselves. I may not admit, I may not see it that way, but understand again how subtle the devil works. The, su- the devil will not come to you because he knows that he will never convince you to make a graven image. He will never convince you to go home and take a piece of wood and carve it out, a little, a little Buddha or a little, a little idol doll, and sit it on your, your dresser at night and, and you would bow down to it. He would never convince you to do that. But how subtly he can come in and say, you know, that checkbook of yours is pretty important. That TV show of yours is pretty important. That relationship with that boyfriend or that girlfriend or whatever is pretty important. And all of a sudden, we're finding ourselves giving homage and we're giving ourselves, giving, giving our time and our efforts more to that than to what God wants us to do. And I'm not minimizing the things of earth. I'm not minimizing our jobs and our things of home. We, we have to do those things. I'm just looking at it so that we would understand our proper perspective and our relationship between what do I value more? Do I value that more than my time with the Lord? Do I value that more than my commitment to the least of these? Or to my commitment to the church? To each other? See, I need you. You need, you need each other in church. It's, we're to be planted in churches because we need people. And I start putting my things over top of those things, godly things, that I'm making idols in my life. And, you know, God's pretty serious about that. God's pretty serious about idolatry. Let's, in fact, I have a couple passages I want to read. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. And I know this is Old Testament. Old Testament is still truth. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations for those who love me and keep my commandments. God's pretty serious. He's not, does anybody not understand that passage? Can you not read that and clearly see that God says, put nothing in front of me. Nothing in front of me. Now, some would say, oh, but Mike, we're in the New Testament, and we're under the area of grace, or the area of grace. And so, therefore, God's not so, not so strong about some of these words. Well, let's read what he says to us in Colossians. This is Paul speaking to the church of Colossus. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 starts off saying this. Since then, since we're Christians, since then, church, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Basically, he's telling us vertical. Get your vertical relationship right with the Lord. Get your relationship right with God first. Set your mind on things above, on eternal things. Set your mind on things that don't pass away here. Focus on those things. And as we do that, and we, and we focus on the things of godly nature, um, basically then 
we're instructed that we are to worship the creator and never the created. The temporal is the created. Why worship something that won't last? I mean, let's just use logic for a minute here, okay? We, we can look logic in the face when we preach and when we teach and we read God's word. If I know something's not going to last, then why do I want to worship it? I mean, I, I can remember when I got new cars, when I got, when I received, when I purchased, or I had a brand new car, I, I, I would get in it and I would smell the, the, the new car smell. You know, the leather and the new car. You know, you know, if you've been in a new car, it just smells good, doesn't it? I mean, it smells new. It smells nice. I love that smell. But it didn't last. It, it, soon, I, and I didn't smoke in the car, and I didn't do anything bad in the car, but, all, but, but slowly the, the new smell left the car. Everything on earth, folks, that we can see, touch, feel, taste, hear, is going to pass away. The only thing that is not going to pass away is the Word of God. Amen? The, past, the Word of God is the thing that's lasting. So why then, logically, would I want to worship something that isn't going to last? It makes sense to me. But the problem is, is when we're deceived, and some of us are, many of us are, we all are to a degree at some point in time in our life, when we're deceived, we don't see logic. Logic doesn't make sense to a deceived person. That's when the power of the Holy Spirit needs to come in. We've been talking about this in, in Philippians. Matt Chandler mentioned it about how the church of Philippi was started through three different people. One was convinced logically as Lydia. One was convinced through the power of the Holy Spirit as the slave girl who was delivered from demon possession. And then one was convinced through example, which was the jailer. And how God uses different times in our life, different seasons in our life, different things in our life that breaks through our, our mind and our spirit. And sometimes logic works. But to the deceived person, logic doesn't work because they're illogical. We become illogical in our justifications. And then we're dangerous, dangerously close to eternal punishment when we get that way. So it's important that we... We understand that. So, so basically then uh, Paul tells us in Colossians that we're to raise and we're, to put, we're to, to put our hearts and our minds on things above. And then he goes on in verse 5 and 6 of that same chapter. It says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Now, I'm going to stop right there. Whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Whenever we see lists of things like, come on, we will read the next things in the list and we'll say, well, I'm not that, I'm not that, I'm not that, so therefore this doesn't apply to me. Well, if you just stop right here and say, put to death, well, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, that, that supersedes any list, okay? Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, put it to death, all right? Now let's finish the scripture. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is what? Which is idolatry. What we've just been talking about. So when I put anything of earthly desires over God, I'm, I'm, I'm serving idols. I, I'm, serving, I, I'm, I'm serving something that's temporary. My lust and my desires for impure things and my evil desires and my greed for more on this earth is all temporary. Why would I want to worship that? Boy, this, come on, logic, let's kick in and help us here. Why would I want to worship that? I don't. 
And then finally in verse 6 here it says, Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Wow. God is serious about idolatry. He's serious about it in the Old Testament, and he's serious about it in the New Testament. If I put anything above, above God, I'm an idol worshiper. God is, God's wrath is coming because of these things. Wow. So therefore, it tells me, who do I worship? I worship God. Uh, no question about it. There is no other person worthy to be worshipped than God and God alone. All right, so that answers that question. Who do I worship? I worship God. Now let's talk about how do we worship. How do we worship then correctly? Um, we're given in the message translation in the book of John, verse 23. I'm sorry, uh, chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. We're giving a really good set of instructions on how to worship. Let's read that. It's who you are and the way you live that count before God. Your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. That's the kind of people the Father is out looking for, those who are simply and honestly themselves before Him in their worship. God is sheer being itself, spirit. Those who worship Him must do it out of their very being, their spirits, their true selves, in adoration. God is, has a form of worship and, and, and a set of people that He accepts worship from and those that He doesn't accept worship from. It's, it, he said it in verse 23. It's who you are and the way you live that count before God. So God is looking for worship from a certain kind of a person with a certain kind of lifestyle. He's not looking for worship from just Joe Blow that lives his life the way he wants to live it and has no relationship with God. He's looking for worship from godly people. Therefore, how I live makes a difference. I've, I've, you and I have been around lots of people that will profess, oh, I'm a godly person, but then living in all-out sin. You read the Scripture. You tell me what God thinks about that. See, no one likes to be around people that aren't really who they are, especially when it's obvious. <laughs> you know, we've been around people that are plastic, that give the facade, but yet, boy, you know, we have some discerning in our spirit that says that's not really who they are. And when we can discern people like that, we don't want to be around that person. So imagine if I can discern that and if you can discern that. Imagine what God thinks. Because God sees the heart of every man. He knows my intention. He knows my motivation. He knows what's in my heart. He knows my agenda. And if, if I'm trying to fool God and trying to come to God in an unholy fashion, when people don't like people like that, imagine how it, how it detests God. To think that we can fool God? Come on, let's let logic settle in here again a little bit more. Come on. God is a God. He, God created us. He knows our heart. I can't go to God if I'm not true. That's why God says, I, you worship me in spirit and in truth, because he knows truth, and he won't accept it if it's not true. And I can't fool him. So God's truth, then, I must worship him. And then, and then the passage goes on, goes on to say, your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. You know, it's, our mind is an amazing thing. Because our mind, we can do all kinds of, of amazing things in our mind, and, and, and good things and bad things. And our mind can be um, so rationalized over our justifications about our lifestyle. 
It's important. You know, he says you worship. You must worship. In, to do that, you must engage your spirit. He doesn't say engage your mind. He says engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. You know, our mind is 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 easier to manipulate and to fool than our spirit. If you go and think about, if you want to fool yourself, you can justify things in your mind, but down deep in your heart, you really know what you're doing, don't you? You can try to fool people, and you can do a good job of it in your mind and in your speech, but down deep in your heart, you know that's not really right. So when we engage the Spirit in our worship, we're engaging the things that God knows is harder for us to manipulate that we really, really know in our heart what's right and what's wrong. And that's why we are to engage our spirit, not just our, true, our, our mind, because God is looking for truthful and authentic worship from people. And it requires a clean spirit within us. It's who we are and the way you live that count before God. Remember, we just said that. So as a person that sees, sees themselves as a forgiven person, um, and even if you struggle in your life, See, we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about people that struggle honestly and then see themselves as struggling, that go, to be, be, that go to God, that say that, God, I'm not worthy, but yet I know you've cleansed me. I, I know I'm fallen. I know I've made mistakes. But, God, through my repentance and continual daily confession of my sin, that I know, God, that you're still looking at me as a righteous man, even though I've fallen. Even though I'm fallen. And that's a different attitude than the same man that tries to fool God. Different approach. Different approach altogether. James McDonald says this in his book. When you worship, you are saying, this one is worth more. At the same time, you are implying, I am worth less. Worship is the magnification of God and the minimization of self. One of the most succinct expressions of a worshiper's heart in all the New Testament came from John the Baptist where he said, He must increase, but I must decrease. So proper worship then is bringing, bringing God in a proper perspective and bringing in that, that we have the proper understanding of who God's position is in the universe and what mine is. God's position is a little bit higher than mine. God deserves a little bit more worship than I deserve. Amen? So now, uh, so we, we're worshiping God. How we worship, we worship in spirit and truth. We worship as our spirit. Uh, and we engage our spirit and not just our mind in worship. When do we worship? Well, all the time. Can you think of any time in your life when you shouldn't worship God? Can you define in the Word any time in God's Word that says, no, now is the time not to worship God? So let's just make it simple all the time. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of our lips that confess his name, okay? There is no time that is not the best time to worship, all right? So that's just, that's an easy one. But yet there are times, though, that, that maybe are more engaging than other times. And I think that, that Sunday mornings or Saturday nights or whenever you have special events, when we come together corporately with the praise the Lord, don't waste those times of corporate praise and worship because that's a time where you can, you can publicly express and you can then ex examine your heart personally but yet give personal or give public display to God that he's worthy of your praise and worship. So there are certain times that are, are more engaging to worship like Sunday mornings. And there are times when, when we have to maybe get out of our comfort zone a little bit. You know, and I look at King David 
And, and I see what, what King David did and, and how he went before the Lord. And sometimes we need to come before the Lord this way as well. Okay, let's, let's read that. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 14 and 16. I, I want to show David's passion and his, and his purpose of worship. It says, David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all of his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. So there are times when maybe you just got to let it go. Uh, maybe there are times where you just got to weep and cry and dance and jump and, and, and do things, and, and that's perfectly appropriate. In fact, it's required of us at times to do that. And then we see what Michael, her, the daughter of Saul, which wait, I'm not going to go into that story. That's a whole other issue. But she despised him because she was embarrassed that here is the king making a fool of himself, dancing before the Lord. David had a clear and a proper understanding of who God was and who David was. And he saw God to be worth it. God to be worthy of his full expression. And when we engage the spirit, like just happened here in David's life, the spirit took over and he, and he slayed the flesh. And even if it made him look silly and, and, and foolish in front of people, he didn't care because he was so in tuned into the vertical of worship that that's all he wanted to do was spend himself worshiping God. Wow, what a freedom there is in that. Finally, why do we worship? We worship God because God's worthy to be worshipped. <laughs> we worship him because he is worthy to be worshipped. That's, again, logic uh, comes to bear here, okay? God is the creator. I'm the creation. Uh, therefore, the creator is worthy to be created, okay? I, I have a dog at home, and the dog takes second place to me. My wife doesn't think so, but I think so. I'm the, I'm the master of the house. When the dog, when I want to move the dog off the bed at night, the dog's got to go because I'm the master of the house. The dog's not wagging my tail here, right? But, but yet, thanks, Dan. But yet many times we find ourselves being with God. We want to be the master of the house when, we don't, when we're not the master of the house. We worship God because God is worthy. And we see an example here that Jesus was tempted with worship. Luke chapter 4, verses 5 and 7. This is when, when Jesus went into the, into the desert for 40 days before he started his ministry. It says, the devil led him to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and all their splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus says, no. No, I, I worship one person. I worship God. And, and even in the midst of potential compromise where Jesus could have maybe, see, <laughs> logic can hurt us here too, because the devil was given authority. God gave him the authority of the kingdoms of the air, of, of the earth. And when Jesus came to take it, see, Satan said, says, I'm going to give it to you. I'll just give it to you, Jesus. And you won't have to go through anything more. But here's the subtleness of the enemy again. Jesus saw through that and he said, no, I'm not going to take a shortcut here. 
I'm not going to worship you, Satan, as a way to get this over here. So we find ourselves in many areas of compromise as well. And don't take the shortcut of the compromise thinking that that's a better way to get there when God has got a plan to take us through the adversity and the, and the necessary things of life to get us to the point where God wants us to get, it, get there. See, if Jesus would have said, yeah, all right, man, that's a great deal. I don't have to go to the cross. If I worship you, you mean, Satan, that, that you're going to give me all the things that I came to take? You're just going to give it to me if I don't have to go to the cross? And Satan says, yeah, yeah, you just worship me, you just worship me. Well, yeah, right. <laughs> you know how that would have gone, right? That's just, that would have gone just like the apple. It wouldn't have worked. But yet Jesus saw through that. And so many times it's an obvious, maybe a silly little example that, of course, Jesus is going to see through that. But yet, do we see through that? Do we find ourselves in the same area of compromise at times? And so what we need to do is we need to be that godly perspective and say, no, I'm going to worship, I'm going to praise him because I'm instructed to. In verse 8, Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. We worship God because we're instructed to worship God. Not only because he's worthy of it, but because we're instructed to. James MacDonald again says in his book, which I referenced earlier, he says, the greatest sin then is directing that adoration elsewhere not only because it insults God, but also it insulates our hearts from the delight we're created to revel in. So interesting, isn't it? That, that the greatest sin then is directing that praise or worship or that adoration elsewhere from God. Not only does it insult God, but it insulates or it steals from me the delight that I have in worship. See, God has given us that purpose of worship, And when I can understand it and, and when I can appreciate worship, worship is a good thing. Worship is intended to be a fun thing. It's, it's intended to be a thing of, of personal fullness, of joy and peace and, and all the things that we want. And, uh, you know, there's, there's psalm after psalm that talks about it. And I certainly don't have any more time to read those passages. But, but Psalm 100, verse 1 and 2, it says, Shout for joy. To the Lord, all the earth. Shout for joy. What is joy? Happiness, peace, patience, goodness. It's all of that. It's, it's not just uh, good circumstances. It's the joy of the Lord. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. We're to worship Him then in everything we do, in everything we go, and where, in everything, and, and how, in the joy of the Lord. And, and we worship Him as a way to bring a fullness into our life. Jackie, if you'd come as we, as we close this morning. And I know that maybe we wonder, how do I bring worship with me into my job tomorrow? How do I take this concept that we can talk very easily about on Sundays because this is when we worship. But now I've got to go to the job. I've got to go to school. I've got to go to... Uh, you know, deal with people. How do you worship then? We worship in truth. And we worship in spirit. You know, and here's the nice thing about it. When, when, God's, when Paul said that we have to engage our mind, or I'm sorry, engage our spirit and not just our mind, see, I can worship God in the midst of a business meeting. I can worship God in the midst 
of a building project. I can worship God when I'm mowing the grass. I can worship God when I'm driving the car. I can worship God when I'm uh, in, in any setting because my spirit is engaged. You see that? It's not just a mind thing. It's not, not just having to have the time where I'm, I'm praying and i got my eyes closed. And, and, you know, God is not intending us in any way, shape, or form to be lazy. We are to go to work. We are to go to our jobs tomorrow. We're not supposed to ever come here and spend seven days a week, 24 hours a day, praying at the altar. That's just not practical. So God gives us the practicality of life. And he says, you know, I know you've got to go to your jobs. I know you've got to, and I want you to do that. But I've given you a way to worship him in spirit and in truth on the job. On the job, you can worship him in spirit and truth in school. When you're taking tests, when you're listening, when you're doing homework, again, it's the truth side of things. It's not taking the shortcuts. It's it's, it's not doing anything in any way that would bring a hindrance to my worship. It's being authentic and true and saying, God, I understand who you are, and I'm going to worship you in the midst of everything that's going on in my life. I'm going to worship you in the midst of the trials, of the heartaches, of the pain, and the joy. Because, God, I worship you, and I recognize who you are. Worship is so powerful. It is the most powerful thing in our life because who you worship determines where you're going to end eternity up. Who, who you worship will determine if you're eternity with heaven and heaven or eternity, eternity in the fire that Drew mentioned about earlier as well. Worship is powerful. So this morning, as, as we evaluate our hearts and lives, maybe this is a new topic for you, or maybe you're very familiar with this already, and maybe you're already fully engaged in spirit-led worship in your life, as I know many of you are. Or maybe you've been exposed to this and... And, and, and you've been a little bit stagnant maybe in your worship. And, and maybe this is a little motivational tool to, to bring a newness of your worship again. But I, I want to just encourage us all to examine our hearts this morning. No matter where you're coming from, I want to encourage us to know that the level of relationship that God is asking for from us is deeper today than it was yesterday. Deeper tomorrow than what it was today. And that comes through worship. You keep your eyes focused on Jesus. And allow worship to flow out of that. Today is the day to begin a new day. As we just bow our heads and we pray, and then we're going to sing a song. But I just want to—I want to close by a self-examination of our hearts today, and, and I just want to ask the Lord to bring a newness in our spirit today. God, I just want to give you the opportunity and the time right now to bring us a new focus. Maybe we have lost some of the passion. Maybe we've lost some of the purpose in our worship to you, God. And, and maybe we have put some other things in place of you, God. And right now, I just want to say I'm sorry for that. The devil will, will want to tell you that you're not worthy to worship. He'll want to come to you and say you're not worthy to worship. But God is saying, you know what, I, I see you. You have a heart of confession. You have a heart of repentance. You know, there was a man that I was reminded of, King David. The Bible called him with a man after God's own heart. But yet, King David was an adulterer. King David was a murderer. King David tried to hide that sin. 
But when it was confessed or when it was brought out to him, the first thing David did is repented and he confessed of his sin. And God calls King David a man after his own heart. And he calls Mike Way a man after his own heart. And he calls Ron and he calls Dick and Angel and, and Sandra and all your other people that are focusing on Jesus. You are a man after God's own heart if you will keep a heart of passion and to keep a heart of worship towards him no matter what, you're, what you've done. You're worthy to worship the Lord. Don't let the devil tell you anything you're not. So God, as we examine our hearts right now, Father, we're asking you just to show us that. God, give us a true sense of personal worship this week. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. You're so absolutely worthy. You are so worthy, Jesus. Amen. Stand with me. Let's sing the song as Jackie's playing. Let's just worship the Lord this morning as we get ready to go to our homes. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, let me just give you a little, a little tidbit here of, of maybe a little help aid. We talked about how powerful the mind is, right? The mind is a powerful thing for imagination. I can imagine a lot of things in my mind. So when I have a hard time worshiping, anytime, 
whether it's night, morning, day, I don't care where I'm at, when I have a hard time worshiping, what I do is I use my mind to engage my spirit. And what I do is I imagine myself in the, in the throne of heaven. And I imagine myself, because there's coming a day we're all going to stand before God, and I'm imagining myself in the presence of God, and I see Jesus sitting at the throne. I see him at the right end of the throne. I see God the Father on the throne. And when I can put that picture in my mind, that helps me to create a spirit of worship in my spirit. So this week as you go, if you struggle with worship, I encourage you to use your mind, whatever mental picture you can make, that can help you get into the spirit of worship. It allows us to see Jesus worthy and me worthy to worship him because of the forgiveness of who I am in Christ Jesus. Amen. Father, I pray that you go with us this week. God, I pray that, that as John Piper said, that the worship that we had on Sunday morning here, that we will scatter it on Monday as we go to our jobs. God, I pray that you stay with us. Oh, God, let we would not waste a moment of our time tomorrow or Friday. God, just be with us and bless us and let us worship you in all your awesomeness, we pray. We give you praise and glory in Jesus' name because it's all about you, Father. It's all about you, Jesus, and we worship you. You're blessed. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.